there is so much mystery and confusion when it comes to category pages on your blog. I get questions all the time about how categories work, how they should be set up, and more. So today I'm sharing some essential strategies to enhance the user experience on your category pages and your website overall. Properly using categories can drastically improve your blog's performance and it can shape the experience that readers have on your website. Hey friend, I'm Madison Wetherill, a web designer and branding strategist for food bloggers and your host for the Vine podcast. This show is all about supporting you as a food blogger as you grow your business. I'll share tips for designing your business and your website with intention so that you can build a blog that fits into your life, not consumes it. You'll hear tips for connecting with your audience, growing your blog, and tips for managing and designing your website, all in short, easy to consume, and actionable episodes. If you're ready to think differently about the strategies and tactics that you need to grow your food blog, you are in the right place. I'm so excited that you're here, friend. Let's get started. Welcome back, food bloggers. I am thrilled to be chatting with you here today, and I'm really excited to jump into this category topic because it is something that, like I said in the introduction, I get asked a lot about categories. It's something that constantly comes up in our work with clients, and I'm excited to just chat about it again today. Now, if you're brand new to the show, I'm so glad that you're tuning in today, and I know that you will walk away with value and something tangible to implement onto your site I am your host, Madison Wetherill. I am the founder and CEO over at Grace and Vine Studios. I am a food blogger like you. I'm also a homeschooling mom to three boys, and I am passionate about the slower things in life like baking sourdough or pouring a hot cup of coffee or just taking a walk around the neighborhood. At Grace and Vine, one of the things that we are super passionate about is supporting our clients as they impact the world through their content and through their businesses. And one of the ways that we are able to do that and to support our clients is through our crafted website packages. Crafted is a way for you to have a website that is professionally designed and unique to your brand, but at a fraction of the cost of a custom website. So if you have been considering a redesign and would like more information, you can head over to graceandvinestudios.com crafted, or check the link in the show notes to learn all about crafted and how it works and whether it would be a good fit for you and your blog in this season. I know a lot of us have been feeling like January has been the longest month ever, but for me, it actually feels like this year is starting to fly by now that we're already into the second month of the year. So be sure to reach out soon if you are interested in redesigning your website so we can get you on our schedule for quarter one or now our quarter two spots as they start to fill up. One other thing that I want to share with you that we are going to be doing in the podcast is a new segment on what is working in food blogging. Now, this idea came to me because I know that as only one person with one experience, even though I have the experience of many of my clients to reference as well, there are so many things that either I haven't done in food blogging or my clients haven't done. And I really wanted to be able to share the experiences that you as the food blogging community are having for sharing tips and tricks about what is working right now in food blogging. As you know, food blogging and just the blogging industry as a whole changes so much, even from day to day. And so what's working right now might be something that doesn't work for you in a couple of months. But I just wanted to be able to highlight 
some of these just little tips and tricks that others are finding success with. And so we are starting this new segment called What's Working in Food Blogging. And I've been so excited to read the submissions you guys have already sent out. I sent this out to my email list a couple weeks ago to start getting submissions and we already have so many of them. So I'm excited to just read one of these every week to you guys so that you can walk away with something that might not be related to the topic that we are talking about today, but might just give you something to chew on and something to think about throughout your week. I will make sure to have a link in the show notes for you if you want to submit something that is working for you. This will get you just a little bit of a shout out on our podcast. It will also be on the show notes blog post, so you'll get a backlink to your site. And it will just kind of give us a chance to get to know more food bloggers and what is working. So today, our first little tip for what is working in food blogging is from Dorothy Stainbrook from the blog Farm to Jar. Dorothy said, moving to ConvertKit and focusing on my weekly newsletter is working, both to get people on my blog for the ad money and to increase my subscribers. I will be using the newsletter in 2024 to increase monetization through sponsors and selling physical products that are promoted through the blog. Thanks, Dorothy, for sharing your tip. And for those of you who are interested, definitely check out a link to ConvertKit so you can learn more about how you can implement email marketing in your own food blog this year. Okay, so we are going to dive into this topic of categories. Like I mentioned, this is something that gets brought up in almost every single project that we do with clients because... For whatever reason, categories are a mystery in the blogging space. We know that they're important. We know that they are needed, but there's a lot of questions around what to do with your category pages, how to organize them, and so many other questions. So today I thought we'd go into some do's and don'ts of category pages and just kind of highlighting some things that are good to do and some things to avoid. One of the goals that I hear from our clients when they redesign their website is they want their readers to be able to get lost in their content. This is something I hear with almost every single client that they want to create an experience on their website where users can just dive in and find more content and just, like I said, get lost. And so in order to give your readers that experience, your website has to be organized. And really well thought out categories are one of the primary ways that food blogs are organized. And I I say food blogs, but really this applies to any content website, any blogging site. Category pages are not only going to help in improving the user experience, but they're also going to contribute significantly to your SEO and to your site navigation and really how Google and readers can experience and understand how your content works together. The problem with categories is that they're often an afterthought for bloggers. Typically, they are an afterthought that comes once you realize you've maybe made a mistake or you have too few or too many categories and you end up having to do what I like to call a category audit in order to be able to kind of clean out the mess and reconfigure things. So a couple of frequently asked questions that I get often about categories, and I'm going to give you the short and sweet answer and then we're going to dive into more specifics. First question, how many categories should I have? The answer is, it depends. Should you have subcategories? The answer is, it depends. What information should be on your category pages? Lots of value and information. How many posts should there be on each category page? Anywhere from 8 to 12, all the way up to 40. Now, I go through those frequently asked questions to specifically show you that there is a lot of confusion in categories because a lot of these answers are going to be dependent on your site specifically. However, with that being said, because food blogs are 
very similar in nature. There isn't a ton that is going to be different from one food blog to another in terms of how to you know, correctly structure things. There are so- some hard and fast rules that we can use when it comes to categories. One thing to keep in mind is that when you are thinking about your keywords for your category pages, you want to make sure that you're not overlapping with roundup topics that you have a blog post for. So for example, the best breakfast side dishes, or you don't want to overlap with a blog post topic that you have. Really, the category should be broader topics where many posts are going to fit into that broader topic and you're not going to be overlapping and competing you know, a blog post keyword with a category keyword. They really should be different. It's really uncommon for most food blogs to rank for category pages unless your site is gigantic. So I wouldn't be too concerned about picking the perfect keyword that goes with a category page or finding something that's super unique. Again, just because most sites, categories are not going to be something that you rank for. They're really going to provide an organization and a structure to your website. You want to be concerned about creating these small hubs of information and value for your readers. So the first thing I want you to do is to make sure you are filling out the description on your category page. So the don't side of that is don't leave this information blank. This is a surprising thing that happens with a lot of our clients, even clients who are very successful and who have very large food blogs, is that they are often finding that they don't have any description written for their categories at all. I want you to think about it this way. Google crawls, when Google crawls a category page, there isn't a lot of content naturally on it. If you only have the title of your category and then 12 to 40 blog posts in that category on that page, that's not a lot of content for Google to go off of. It also isn't a lot of content for your readers to go off of. So I want you to be adding a description that adds text for Google to read that is clearly explaining what this category is all about. This can also be really helpful for your readers because it describes what this category is about, what makes your dinner category different from others. This is also an excellent task for ChatGPT to help you with, where you can create a prompt and then feed it, you know, 10 different categories that you want it to write descriptions for you. Obviously go back and rewrite those so they sound like a human wrote them and they are really well thought out. But this is a great starting place for you if you don't have any descriptions written and you just need something to get you started. That's an excellent way for you to use an AI tool like ChatGPT to help you. I also wanted to read something that Feast has in one of their blog posts about categories because it really describes how to think of categories. So this blog post says, here's rule number one. If you can't articulate why this category exists in three to four sentences for your readers, then don't create the category. You need to explain to your reader why your curated list of recipes is better worth their time than just returning to Google search results. I love this way of thinking about it because it just so clearly paints why these pages are important because why would your reader wanna stick around and browse your dinner category versus going back to Google and just typing in dinner recipes? How have you created a curated list of those recipes that is going to serve your reader in a really thought out way. Now I wanted to read a specific example of what one of these category descriptions could look like. So I'm going to share an example from the blog Feast and West, my really good friend Susanna, and this is from her gin cocktails page. And her description says, gin is the floral herbal spirit on the bar cart. Most people love it or hate it. 
but it is always worth a second chance if you're on the fence. Different brands have different flavor profiles, so it's all about finding the one you like. It will open a world of new cocktail recipes like these. And then she goes and lists out some of the recipes that are relevant. So I love that this really describes what gin is, what the cocktails are like, and it also opens your mind if you're not someone who typically likes those types of cocktails. It opens your mind to wanting to try some of the recipes that she suggests later. Really, this is such a good example, too, of her website showing that she is an expert in this topic. This isn't just find the best gin cocktails below. It's really explaining what is gin, why some people might like it or not like it, and again, why you should be open-minded to trying something new. So that is a really good, just quick example of something, you know, of how to fill out these descriptions. And you can do this for every single one of your categories. Really think about how you are providing something unique to your readers and put that into your description. Our second thing to do is to add links to relevant content within the category. So after your description or even as part of it, add links to relevant content that is from that category itself. This is again going to help give your readers an idea of what to expect within this category. And it's going to give Google more information to crawl so it can be putting the pieces together. When I say breakfast recipes on my site, here's what that means. It means recipes like XYZ. I have an example from my blog, Joyfully Mad, where I have on my breakfast recipes post, I have the description, the couple sentence description at the top. And then I go into sharing specific examples of what you can find. And I have these in sentence form, but they are in a bulleted list. So it says, make your mornings hassle-free with these make-ahead breakfast recipes. That's linking to a roundup post that I have. If you are always on the go and would like to have a pastry in the morning, this breakfast puff pastry can be made ahead of time for a full week of breakfast. And then finally, cheesy breakfast egg muffins are the ultimate grab-and-go breakfast delight. So I'm just sharing in this list different examples of recipes that you can find. So you know you're going to find things like egg muffins, maybe some pastries, and you can also find make-ahead breakfast recipes. This is where it gets really specific to your blog because what might be on my site for breakfast recipes could be completely different from somebody else. Somebody else might have more say, uh, sweet breakfast recipes like pancakes and waffles and things like that. And as you go through and you add more content to your site, you can update these category pages to reflect either your most popular content or other sub-content you know, silos that you might have, like if I were to add muffins and pancakes and things like that into this description. The next thing that I recommend doing is creating subcategories when needed. As I'm saying that, this is something that is controversial and other people like Feast have specifically said that they don't like subcategories. But hold your thoughts here as I explain. One thing that Feast does recommend and other SEOs in the industry do recommend is splitting categories when they get to be too large. And in my mind, the same concept really applies here. Whether you are creating a subcategory that goes underneath your breakfast recipes or you're creating another, you know, parent level category, I think the point here is that you want to make sure your categories are not extremely large. There shouldn't be hundreds of recipes in one category. When you start to have more than 40 or 50 blog posts in a category, you want to consider breaking those into multiple categories or into subcategories. It really just depends, again, on the situation here. And I'll give you an example from my site that kind of paints this picture a little bit more. So in my breakfast category, I also have subcategories for muffins and for smoothies. 
Now, muffins and smoothies in them in and of themselves are still breakfast recipes. So instead of having, you know, to check the boxes for breakfast, smoothies, and muffins, if I just select muffin, it's also going to be within my breakfast category because that's a subcategory within that. This can work really well for categories like dinner, dessert, breakfast, even appetizers or drinks, only depending on what level and how much content you have within those main categories. It really should only be done when it makes sense for the way that you publish content and the way that your site is organized. If you do not have more than 40 blog posts in one category, then one main category is probably sufficient in most cases. But as you are working on filling out new categories and maybe you know you're going to be working on a ton of smoothie recipes over the next few months or weeks, it might make sense then to go ahead and pre-create that smoothie category because you know you're going to be filling it out. But at the beginning of your blogging journey or as you're really thinking about these categories, don't get crazy with creating a ton of categories and subcategories for things you might not end up publishing in the future. You can really just look ahead at your editorial calendar and think about what categories would you need. Sometimes this is even helpful to just put into a Google Doc and you know have different headings for what your categories are going to be and jot down your ideas that you have within that category. It's a great way to really figure out tons of ideas for blog posts, but it will also really help you to understand what categories are really needed within your blog topic. When you create categories and subcategories, I would highly recommend linking them within the main category. So for example, my breakfast categories, I want to make sure that I'm linking to my smoothies and my muffin categories because I want it to be obvious that those things are all connected And this is really doable with any theme, regardless of whether you're using the Feast plugin or Cadence or any other type of theme, because you can just simply add buttons or links in your description pointing out those subcategories. But it can also be done automatically in some themes and with things like the Feast plugin as well, where it will add the actual buttons that go to those subcategories automatically so you're not having to do it, which is a nice little feature. So within the do create subcategories, there is a caveat and something to be really mindful of as you are doing this. And that is don't create empty parent categories like course, cuisine, etc. Now out of the box, there isn't a great way to optimize subcategory pages that are purely meant for organization. And those types of categories are things like course, cuisine, protein, etc., Those are really designed to create the hierarchy for subcategories to keep things organized for you as the blogger. But what it does in doing that is it creates these useless categories for the parent category. So it doesn't make sense for somebody to browse a course category because it would basically be all of your posts that fit under dinner, side dishes, dessert, breakfast, drinks. It would literally just be any post that you've been publishing Instead, what you're doing with creating that course is you're creating an organization for yourself to have breakfast, dinner, side dish, dessert, etc. as subcategories. So this is where being really thoughtful and strategic about how you set these up is really important. And this is one of the examples of things that I've seen food bloggers do when they get started with their blog that they end up having to fix later on because it just creates, again, those empty categories that are pretty much useless for a a user to browse because it's just all of your recipes. And this creates a poor user experience. So this is what we want to avoid doing when we create subcategories. We don't want to create these just empty and useless parent categories. In my prior example where I was talking about my breakfast category, 
that breakfast category is still very useful because I'm able to see all the different breakfast posts that I have. I'm not just creating something that's kind of a grab bag. It still makes sense to be able to go from breakfast down to muffin or smoothie and kind of you're, you're getting into a smaller query. You just want to be careful that you're not doing this in an extensive amount because it can create multiple pages that someone has to click to in order to get to what they're looking for. You really have to be careful and thoughtful in how you set these up and why, generally speaking, most people don't recommend subcategories because it's harder to think about it this way and be really strategic and thoughtful about it. And typically with our clients, we only recommend setting up these subcategories and sort of these nested categories when it makes sense for either something that we're building within their recipe index or it makes sense for the amount of content that they have because they don't want to have just these massive categories with hundreds of blog posts. So again, take this with a grain of salt. I know that most people would say don't use subcategories, but I think you can do it in a really thoughtful way where it's super useful for your readers. But most of the time, main you know top level categories are going to be sufficient as long as you are making them small enough that they don't have hundreds of posts. Our next thing to do is to use the built-in category taxonomy pages. That was a mouthful to say, but what I mean by this is you want to make sure you're using the category themselves and you're not creating a page to reference that category. I've seen this done with a lot of people in the past where they might create a page for breakfast recipes. And on that page, they're basically creating a grid of all of their recent blog posts within that category. And that's exactly what the category pages do out of the box. So we want to make sure we're not creating these duplicate resources on our site where we have the category pages that are going to be referenced on things like our recipe index or in our breadcrumbs. But we also have pages that do the exact same thing because then we're just creating more information and more hubs for Google to understand. And it just ends up being very confusing for both Google and for your reader. And I know why people would want to do this because building a page, especially with blocks, is going to be so much more easy to design and easy to do than trying to manipulate the category pages themselves, which out of the box don't have a ton of customization. But again, I just told you what kind of the downside of doing that is because you're creating duplicate information and duplicate you know, hubs of that same information. So even though it might be frustrating that out of the box, you know, category pages don't give you a lot of options, I still recommend just using those category pages and using something that will help you to enhance those pages. That's something that the Feast plugin does really well. It's something that our crafted websites do really well. So there's options of what you can do, but I would rather see a simple text only page than to have these duplicate, you know, pathways for people to find information through both a page and a category where it just gets really confusing. So again, just even though those category pages are simple, it's really the best practice to use them. And you wanna just fully fill out those category pages as much as you can and let their structure make your job easier to display all of the posts within that category rather than having to build that yourself. The last don't that we have on this list is something that I still see people struggling with and I still see people doing incorrectly. And that is do not use tags. Honestly, just don't. If you are getting started and you're wondering, do I use tags or categories? Always use categories. They really are basically the exact same thing. The only difference between the two is categories can have that hierarchy of parent and subcategories, whereas tags cannot. But 
when I see people using both, it is just confusing and it creates a whole host of other SEO issues. So I would highly recommend just rely on your categories, no index your tags through your Yoast settings and only use those tags internally if you need to have things, you know, organized like ingredients or whether posts are sponsored or not. They really shouldn't be displayed anywhere on your blog, especially if you have told Google not to index them through your Yoast settings. You want to make sure you don't have those linked under your blog post or anything like that. And you don't want to have any links to those posts or to those tag pages in any of your blog posts. So if you're not sure if you're using categories or tags, just start using categories alone. Do not use tags. That is just a confusing experience for you and for your readers and for Google, which we don't want. I hope that this episode has been helpful to kind of give you a couple of things to think about and a couple of action steps for your category pages. And just to review those really fast, you want to make sure that you are filling out the description on your category pages fully, including a two to three sentence description about what the category is and why it's valuable for your reader, and also linking to relevant content from that category within that category description. As needed, create subcategories or new categories to take those larger category pages with more than 40 or 50 blog posts and making them smaller and making them more specific. Don't create empty parent categories like course or cuisine, things like that that are not really a useful way of browsing content. And then make sure that you're using those built-in category pages, not creating an actual page to reference that category information. And lastly, do not use tags. Just don't do it. It's going to make your life so much easier in the future. I will make sure to link to a couple of other episodes where we've talked about categories in the past, just so that you have a little bit more information if you need it. And as a reminder, make sure that you go and submit what's working in food blogging for you right now. There's a form that's in the show notes for you to just give your information and share what's working for you. And then lastly, make sure to check out our crafted website package. If you are thinking about redesigning this year and you're looking for something that is going to be high value and high impact for your readers, but is going to be a lot more affordable than a custom website has been in the past. We would love to see if we are a good fit to work together and you can go right to the information page and request a proposal to be sent to you to get all the information that you need to make a decision. Until next week, my friends, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I would love for you to screenshot it and share it with a friend. You can tag me on Instagram stories at Grace and Vine. For the show notes for this episode, head to thevinepodcast.com. Talk soon.